Miracle in Rwanda is an off-Broadway play based on the real-life story of Immaculate Ilibagiza. She was able to survive the genocide against the Tutsis to become a motivational speaker and New York Times best-selling author. Good morning. This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. I'm joined by two people responsible for bringing Miracle in Rwanda to the stage. George Drantz is the artist-in-residence at Fordham University Lincoln Center artistic director of the Magis Theater Company and director of Miracle in Rwanda. And Malaika Uwamahato is a Fordham University alum, singer, poet, and actor who's starring in this off-Broadway performance. I want to say good morning to you, too. Yes, good morning. Good morning, Robin. Uh, and I want to discuss the play in a moment, but first, can you explain, either of you, what happened in Rwanda during the Civil War to sort of give us an understanding of where we're coming from right. in this play? Okay, first of all, I would like to address it as a genocide against the Tutsi and not the Civil War, because a war would imply that there's two sides fighting against each other, where in this case it was just a massacre um, of uh, ethnicities. Thank you. Uh, and ethnicities. So um, the genocide in Rwanda happened in uh, 1994. Uh, it started on April 6th. On April 6th, the the president then, um, his plane was shot down and um, there had already been plans of eliminating the Tutsi people in Rwanda. I mean, machetes had been bought and everything. They were just like looking for something to be be able to actually start that massacre. So, Why? So 1994, like a million people were slaughtered in three months, right? So before that, uh, there were what I would call mini genocides and not to like um, make it less than what it was but the the really huge genocide happened in 1994 that was like the most remarkable one but we had one in 59 we had one in like 62 we had you know there was like Tutsis being massacred um, you know throughout the years but uh, the, 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 the government in power the Hutus in power at that time they were never really able to carry out the genocide that they wanted. Um, so before, so a little bit of the history is way, way, way back in time, Rwanda had um, what we call the Hutus, Tutsis, and the Twas. And what this was, this was like a social economical scale. So like if you had 10 cows, you were considered a Tutsi. If you had less than 10 cows, you were considered a Hutu, and your like work in the society was to do agriculture. So Tutsis were more affluent. Well, yeah. And then uh, if you had no cows at all and you were into like pottery and hunting and stuff, then you would be a Twa. So like, let's say you're a Tutsi and you like... Uh, you have 10 cows and one cow dies, you know, and you then become, uh, you, you no longer hold the status of being a Tutsi, you become a Hutu. So this was something that was like a social economical class thing. And you could move up and down the scale, basically. Um, then when the colonials come, uh, we had the Germans come in and we had the Belgians come in. When the Belgians come, came in, they took what was a social economical uh, uh, scale, class, whatever, and they started to make it about ethnicity. And they, you know, they were saying Tutsis were tall people, and they had long noses, and the Shutis, uh, the Hutus were 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 shorter, and they, you know, they they started making it about ethnicity. And uh, when they did that, they they made it more official by by like putting it on identification cards, you know, and you know it it, it really started to become cemented, you know, that okay, if you're a Tutsi, this you have your ID card and 
you know, the, you you are a Tootsie. Like it became a thing, and you could not, you could no longer move up and down the scale. But still, Ron, what we need to realize about Rhonda and why our genocide is really interesting is because we all, Hutu Tutsi Atwa, speak the same language, share the same culture, have like we we share the same religions. Like we mostly are Christian in some denomination, and we also have Muslims. You know, and we we just there's nothing too different like to make us different really you know and that was like a threat to like the colonial power that was coming in because we were so unified and so organized so this was a way to create um to start creating like segregation between us or hate and you know that that making that difference like really created hate started to create hate and there were rumors like you know the tootsies have always been in power and so it just started to like you know bad blood started to spread so um when this happened so now uh the belgians came in i believe in 1932 we could check my history but like um you know they came in around then so by the time 1959 came around which is like the time of my grandmother like there was there was like like mini massacres where the hutus you know were trying to get into power and were massacring tutsis because they were always in power and, and you know you, the the belgians had said like you know tutsis like are more beautiful and more like this and that and just weird things started to like cause this uh riff yes so 1959 so like my grandmother at that time fled and like went to Uganda and sh- she was born uh she she was like she had my whole my whole family my mother was born and raised in Uganda so she was never my mother never knew Rhonda like that um and so we we our family kind of like was born in as as refugees basically we had that lifestyle and then in 1962 another like mini genocide happened and the french were really involved in this at this point they helped they helped like buy give money to the Rwandan government to buy machetes from China. China was also involved in that in that capacity. So there's like um so by the time nineteen ninety four came around, there's enough hatred to go around. Then um when the president's plane was shot down in nineteen ninety four, April sixth, this was kind of like a trigger to get things going. Cause what was happening is that the president then was uh in peace talks, was trying to get peace talks uh you know, to like bring the tensions down. And he was trying to be diplomatic about this. Either he was leaving or going to the peace talk and, you know, he was going to like, you know, come back home and start to share power with the rebels who were trying to come in to, you know, create equality for the Tutsis. That's when his plane was shot down. And for the Hutus in power then, they said, you know, the plane was shot down by the Tutsis, so you have to kill the Tutsis because... They just want to stay in power and they, they're taking everything that's yours and blah, 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 blah. So that was like what the president's plane was the actual trigger for now the genocide. But you have to understand that there was already preparations for this. I mean, the machetes were in place. People had been trained to kill. So, yeah, so the the genocide against the Tutsi started um, April 7th, 1994 and lasted for three months. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon, joined by director George Drance and performer Malaika Uwamaharo. Both are part of the off-Broadway play Miracle in Rwanda. It's based on the real-life story of Immaculate Ilibagiza. 
She was able to survive the genocide against the Tutsis to become a motivational speaker and New York Times best-selling author of the book Left to Tell, Discovering God Amidst the Rwandan Holocaust. So, Malika, did you read the book, um, and what did you think? Yes, I read the book, and I first read it in 2009. Uh, my mom is a huge reader, um, and she had read the book, and she's like, you need to read this book. And I was like, okay. And I read the book, and I was like, wow. And I was like, wow, that's like an incredible story. But being in Rwanda, I mean, you hear stories of survival all the time, you know. And I remember that that story kind of stuck to me because it was different. Immaculate she went through a lot you know in those three months she was hidden in this bathroom a lot and the stories that I am used to hearing are people who actually were not able to find hiding places you know and so I remember Immaculate's story being really unique to me because I'm like oh my goodness she was she was there but she she had like fear around her but she was like in a safe and I say safe with quotations in a safe like place because other people that I've heard of were hiding under a bed and they were found and things were things happened to them and you know they were never really safe from the hiding places that they that they had found you know um or they they were able to see things and Immaculate didn't really see but she heard and she smelt you know which is a, a different experience so I remember when I read the book it's sticking in my mind because I'm like oh this is another another story that is so unique in its own in its own way um and i and i just also thought about like the you know the book really goes into like how she was able to even survive that because i mean if you're hearing horror and you're smelling horror and it just it's another level of you know survival how how to get over that and like and what's also incredible about her story is that it is a story about survival, but like it's also an incredible story about forgiveness. Because she lost her whole family; they yeah. were all massacred. Yes. And when you say bathroom, we're not talking about a big luxurious <laughs> no. bathroom. It was three her by four, and, three feet by four feet, and, and she wasn't the only one in o- it. No. Seven other people. Seven other people in there. So I mean, it, it was it was horrible. It was really horrible. And like that's the thing that stuck out to me in, in two thousand and nine when I read the story. And you know, so when this came background to me and you know they're like oh how would you feel about you know playing this role I was like oh my goodness I, I challenging yeah challenging excited. amazing scary all of these things you know an honor but you know it's also it's 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 um yeah it's all those things and I just remember you know and now that I'm rereading her story again and like, you know, just rediscovering it and, you know, just just goes back to this really is a story of not only survival, but of forgiveness and something that I think that's so wonderful about her story is that forgiveness is something I feel like we all need to um, to practice or all need to, you know, be able to do. And that's kind of like I think the the message we're trying to bring across. George, did you read Immaculate's book? I've read um, several several things by her. She has um, left to tell, but then she also has um, she, she has a book on the Rosary, which um, was really the instrument that helped her to come to the realizations that helped her get through, survive. Um, keep going, keep hopeful, even though everything around her was exactly the opposite mm-hmm. of it. 
So I've I've read I haven't read it completely, but I've read several things by her, and it's uh, it's just fascinating to um, to to see what what she's been through. I I love hearing her voice. There's um, some of her books are on tape, and so uh, there's just um, a vitality in her voice. And one of the things that we we said in in rehearsal was, you know, at the very first part. Uh, you know, it would be great if the audience were able to experience that. So we've been working on that. Malaika found something really beautiful. And um, it's funny that one of the things about uh, putting it on stage is being true to the original and also finding what works for for Malaika for a contemporary audience for, for this time. So um, originally... Uh, you know, we we tend to go into things like this, and we tend to say, well, um, there's a kind of a solemnity to it, and there is, and there is a way in which um, the things that this is dealing with are some of the most solemn things in the world, but when you listen to Immaculate's voice, again, she has just such a, a great personality and such life inside her. So um, we want to honor that, too. Um, and it's uh, the, the creator, uh, the creators of the piece, when um, at one rehearsal, when they saw what we were doing at the beginning of it, um, were first a little, but it's not really that way that we did it. And, and I said, well, I understand. But as a director, wouldn't it be great if we can start from there? And can you describe what you're talking about? Sure. Well, um, you know, Malaika can maybe give you a few lines from the beginning of the show. So, Okay, um, let me do that. <laughs> and the curtain rises. <laughs> Hello, my name is Immaculate Ilibagiza and I am a Tutsi. Thank you for wanting to hear the story of how I survived the genocide in Rwanda. You see this uh, rectangle here? Yes. 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 I can hear you. It measures three feet by four feet. This is the exact size of the bathroom where I was hidden during the genocide. This was my hotel, Rhonda. So, some say that my story is a sad story, but I know there is hope. After all, I was just a girl from Central East Africa, yet here I am speaking to you in English. And in a moment, you will watch a play about my life. I wish for every genocide survivor to be so blessed. So, I know that there is hope. But you can decide. And then the moment that follows that is really one of the things where I said is the real beginning of the play. It's when she calls her father back to memory. She says his name on stage. Mm -hmm. And there is something so beautiful about the sounds of uh, the name of her father that I wanted to set it apart. I wanted to be a kind of a, a conscious calling back and reverence and almost an apology for disturbing his peace. Because Immaculate was, her father was the one who told her to run. Yes. Correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so so the transition moment um, for me from, from that personality, from that bubbly personality, maybe maybe if you could do that. Yeah, so okay. so if, we, if we continue just a second. So what are we seeing? And then you right. tell me what we're, you, you explain what you're going to. Well, I go from, so I know that there is hope. But you can decide. This story begins with Leonard Ukurichin Hindi. 
That is my father. And when we found that, there was something just so right about those silences, something so right about leaving room for for question, like, well, what just happened to that woman we saw? Um, what would make that response happen? Um, in theater, we're always looking at the humanity of the person, the humanity of the character, and those are the most beautiful discoveries that I find on stage. And the silence really gets your attention. It really does. Mm-hmm. Are you saying, uh, George, that the play, that playwright Leslie and co-creator Edward, uh, their vision, you translated it a little bit different when it hit the stage? Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I think that part of um, part of the beauty about what they did was they created a vehicle whereby the reality of what happened and uh, the story of how the world continues to proliferate these kinds of attitudes, they created a vehicle whereby that um, that mentality could be unmasked and challenged. Leslie took it all over the world. It performed in, um, I think, on five continents, many, many different countries. She really devoted years and years uh, to the telling of this story and to keeping it alive in our consciousness. Humans have a very, very short memory. And as soon as um, something a little bit more uh, pleasant comes along, we like to brush aside things and we forget. And um, and one of my favorite passages in in the book of Exodus is... uh, there arose in, in, in Egypt a pharaoh that did not remember Joseph. And that was the beginning of everything. Memory is so important to me. It's so important to this play. And I think we're suffering from a kind of a cultural amnesia where we uh, forget that um, what humanity is capable of is simultaneously uh, awful and wonderful. And how do we choose which step we're going to take? So what Leslie and Edward put together, I think, was a a fantastic vehicle. What we're discovering now is because of Malaika's personal experience, that is something that no one, unless you live through that, could possibly access that in, in different ways. So we're interested in taking what they have created and really, um, really making it something that is uh, has the same impact but goes even deeper than, than where they went in the first place. Uh, we have another Fordham grad, uh, Nisara Lewis, who is Malaika's understudy. And, um, you know, our hope is that we begin to train more and more people who can do this script, who can take it out to different places. Um, it's really just the beginning of ways in which the story can be told and can be kept fresh in our memory. Now, Malika, you're not only performing the central character, but also, am I correct, nine others? Yes. <laughs> Can you introduce us to them? Who are they? Well, we have the pastor who uh, saved Immaculate uh, and hid her during those three months. We have uh, the killer who was always trying to haunt her down or searching the pastor's house. We have the six, seven other ladies who are in the bathroom. We have um, 
a French uh, lieutenant who eventually uh, lets Immaculée and the other ladies into the refugee camp. We have Immaculée's friend um, who had survived the genocide. Uh, you know, his name is Joseph, and um, he's the one who, you know, lets Immaculée know what happened to her family in, in, a, in a special way. I don't want to give everything away. Right, right. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, we have Jesus. We have Mary, you know, <laughs> Mother Mary. So, we, yeah, it's... It, I'm doing all those people, which is so interesting. But, you know, what it's shown me is that it's not that these things are foreign. These things are very accessible. If I wanted to, if I put my energy to being a killer, I could become one. It's not so far. It's not so foreign. Um, and if I wanted uh, to have integrity and to save people from harm, like the pastor did, that's not so far. It's not so far away from me either. So what I'm recognizing is that these are conscious choices that people make. In this play, it shows you how human, you know, how human everybody is, and how they make their decisions and. It reflects, you know, and, you know, when you think about, oh, I could never be a killer, but I'm able to access that inside me. What does that mean? Originally, was the play supposed to be performed, the one person doing 10 characters or mm -hmm. that's how, how you Yeah, move? it's it's always been a one woman show. I, and I think there is part of um, the power of a solo performance is to see the actor's craft and to allow um, that element of artistry to take a story that otherwise is unhearable and make it make space for it in the audience to hear it which character is most like you and why um <laughs> jesus no i'm kidding <laughs> uh no i'm kidding um but i w i would like to say the pastor and I say that because, I mean, a lot of times we are addressed with really tough decisions to make and you have to make the decision, am I going to make the tough, like the easy decision or am I just going to, it's uncomfortable for me, but I'm going to do it anyway because it's the right thing to do. Because he put himself in jeopardy right. by hiding these By people. hiding her. I mean, they would have killed him and his family if they found out, you know what I'm saying? So I think that... Okay, maybe this is not exactly who I am like, but who I would like to be, you know. Um, I, I really, it was an honorable thing that he did. And he he did, he really did put his family in jeopardy. Um, I saw an interview with him and he said, if the women were found, he would have been made to kill them mm -hmm. yes. before he and his whole family were killed. Were killed, yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes, because, uh, you know, it, it was put out there that if you save these Tutsi people wouldn't you you're gonna first have to kill them and then we're gonna kill you but like they would they would make little kids kill people you understand they would make like if if you had you know like I said Hutus, Tutsis and Twas they used to we, we share the same culture we used to intermarry and everything so you would have like a Hutu lady who's married to a Tutsi man or a Tutsi man who's married to a Hutu lady and they would have this child you know who is both and they would make Either the wife kill their husband or the husband kill the wife and then kill the kid because the kid has Tutsi blood. Like, they would do really vicious things. The genocide was so gruesome and so 
evil in in like the worst ways possible and um to know that those sides of us exist is also something that we reveal in in this in this part of there there is like you know we show we show that part too as much as you know you have like the pastor who is you know this um really compassionate guy and then you have Immaculate who's going through this really difficult hardship then you have this killer who's really like he can't it's it's hard to see good in him even though when he's talking he has like a bunch of jokes that really aren't funny but like you can see that if you were a nice guy you'd be like your jokes might be funny but you know he has this weird sense of humor to him and so what do you do different with your body or your voice or your mm -hmm. mannerisms to move you from one character to the other well um one of the things that i would like to say about the pastor mm -hmm. that's really um revealing is the way it's written is he yes he's a compassionate man but also he his his default as everyone's is is to say no at first uh, and so we're having a lot of fun with that, that the, the first impulse is no, but then his conscience really bubbles up in mm -hmm. him. And, and it's not very long before he just kind of takes a deep sigh and says, OK, I'll do it. And, and that, um, that moment of choice, uh, even the moment of reversing a choice, which one says, well, no, that's not the best choice. Again, I think that's something that mm -hmm. we really need to exercise in today's day and age. Yeah. We, we tend to personalize our choices. We tend to make it, well, I said this and it's out there, so I have to live by this until I die. But what's um, not only um, compassionate and wonderful about the pastor's ability to do that, it's also kind of humanly humorous where we can see ourselves in that. And I, I keep thinking of the, the parable of the man who had two sons and says to the first one, go into the field, and he says, I'll go, but he never, he never goes. And then the other one says, no, I won't go, but later on he changes his mind and he goes and does it. Well, that's, that's kind of what we're working on with him. So we look to find images for these people. Um, Malaika has great training. <laughs> having gone to Fordham University in the theater department. Yeah. And, um, you know, uh, Dawn Saito is the movement teacher, and um, she's so great at really um, finding different ways where impulses can live in the body and can express different realities. And so Malaika's a professional. Can you give me a little bit of the pastor, Malaika? Oh, would you like some steak for dinner too, Immaculate? What are you talking about? <laughs> that's that's him. and you know, and everything changed. You kind of slumped over. Yeah, your face kind of crunched up. I could see the old man coming uh -huh. out of you. You know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's diff. Like, I I'm getting a lot of help from George, obviously, but there's like a lot of vocal changes for each one, vocal and body. You know, ev everything counts. You know, like what is like. What is the one thing that these people do, you know, that, that really just brings them out, you know? George, what type of person is going to love this show? Well, I think it's potentially lovable by every person because it is a story of courage, of forgiveness, of hope. Uh, it's really a story that is transformative. 
And I look at the world right now and I said, if there's one thing that we're in need of, it's a little transformation. So I think it really has a very wide appeal. People who are interested in social justice can connect to it. People who have their own experience of uh, finding it difficult to forgive something or someone in their life. People who uh, really are interested in the world as a global community. Uh, I, I could go on and on, but I think it has a, a very, very broad appeal. And the way in which this journey is embodied and uh, Immaculate's real uh, ability to uh, transcend everything mm -hmm. uh, is, is just a very hopeful, humanizing, and uh, wonderful experience. So we talked about Miracle in Rwanda. Where can we see it? When can we see it? And where can we get information? At the Lion Theater on Theater Row. That's 42nd Street between 8th and 9th. And it goes from April 4th until April 21st. But it looks like we're going to extend. So we may be going all the way to May 11th. Uh, you can find the website at Miracle in Rwanda. That's all lowercase, all one word. Dot NYC, and that'll take you right to a place where you can get tickets. My guests today from the off-Broadway play Miracle in Rwanda have been director George Drance and performer Malaika Owamaharu. You can like Fordham Conversations on Facebook, you can follow us on Twitter, and catch up on shows you've missed with our weekly podcast. For WFUV's Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon.